Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm just trying to get my head around this because it really is like such a, you know, a crazy end to your career is actually that one of your last acts hmm. is to wrap up what is essentially the biggest case that you have worked on, possibly the biggest case that's happened in Ireland in you know, the last 50 years. Yeah, yeah, what's, yeah. What's going on in your head? There's not many guards in the country that will ever charge someone with capital murder, like, you know. Capital murder. A law that was only brought in as a replacement for the death penalty. A punishment so severe, it carries a mandatory 40-year prison sentence. A punishment so rare, that only three men have received it since 1985. Those who protect the peace is the antithesis of what inspired those who set out to rob last Friday night. It was emotional, yeah. If you have any semblance of goodness in you, for God's sake, turn these people in. The murder of a police officer is not something that the state takes lightly. It's not something the Gardaí do, either. In the biggest manhunt in the history of this country, the story of a fallen colleague, a husband lost, is something Pat never envisioned would happen in his tenure. It's fitting that the final case in this series, and the final case of Pat Murray's career, holds more weight than anything that had come before him previously. Everybody was huddled, standing in corners, two and three people, and people crying their eyes out. I couldn't allow my emotions to take over, like, you know, because I had a job to do. The Making of a Detective is brought to you by The Irish Sun. I mean Doyle. This is the first of three parts, documenting the murder of Adrian Donoghue. If this is your first time listening to the series, we recommend you starting from episode one the beginning of Detective Murray's career. Pat's long career in the Gardaí was often filled with drama, enough to write a book and star in a podcast series. But fortunately, there have only been a handful of times that he's encountered real danger on the job. He recounts an incident during his time in Blanchardstown Garda Station what began as a normal day on the job. A unit was sent out to make an arrest at a home in the area. With a warrant in hand, they approached the residence, hoping to enter and make the arrest. 
He went to run out the back door. I ran after him. He couldn't get out the back door. I caught him. He turned around and lifted a knife off the top of the, you know, the, near the sink, and he, and he went to stab me as hard as he could. Now, I held him with two hands, and I was shouting for help. And uh, I was carrying a firearm and was quite entitled to take it out and shoot him. But I knew if I let go with one hand, I hadn't enough strength in one hand to hold him. I was going to get stabbed. And I was struggling with this guy in the kitchen. And, you know, his mother stood in the door between me and him and the rest of the detectives. And she was shouting at him, stab him, stab him, go on, stab him. You know, like this was his mother. And uh, only for one of the detectives uh, gave her a good box on the back of the head and moved her and they got in to help me. Now the struggle went on and we all fell on the ground and the knife went through one of the guards' hands. Like So you have that type of situation where you just don't know what you're going to face. You just don't know what you're going to face. Now I could have been killed that morning. I could have been... I remember that stuck with me. I was, I was not scared, but... It was a fright, you know, it was a fright. So you just don't know what you're going to face, and that's that's it, like, you know. For Pat, the daily threat of violence and danger, that wasn't enough to keep him up at night. The more concerning matter, though, was the unpredictability of when they might occur. Precautions were always made, but there was an element of luck that dictated your safety on the job. It's very unpredictable. And since the inception of, of Garda Shia there has always been guards killed in the line of duty. And there will in the future be guards killed in the line of duty. And it is a dangerous job from the point of view that you just do not know. In 2013, Pat Murray was still a DI for the Loud District. Truth be told, it was a difficult part of the country to be posted. I spent 10 years there on the border and there's no place like Dundalk. They call it Fort Apache and that's exactly what it is. His time there was complicated. Pat was an experienced detective, but he was facing some frustrations. And at times, he felt his hard work wasn't being acknowledged. That aside, Working on the border brings its own complications, a hangover from the troubles that is still seen today. And you have uh, some lovely people up there, great people, but the paramilitary element that sort of ruled there at one stage left a blanket of quietness over when something happens. People who would like to cooperate don't, just to see it safe or not to say anything to the guards or say anything. Stephen Breen is crime editor with the Irish Sun. We have a, a, a culture of silence, the omerta, uh, along the border. It's been operating for many years. We know even during the Troubles where you had the Professional IRA having strongholds in, in South Armagh along the border, Fermanagh uh, as well. You know, there was this perception that you don't talk to the security forces, you, you don't talk to the authorities. The region is also a hotbed for criminality. Two policing jurisdictions create opportunities for criminals and gangs to operate freely. They can often use the border to their advantage as a means of defence or evasion. The border brings its own policing difficulties. And, you know, 
what people get away with one side of the border, they just skip to the other side of the border, hoping not to be caught. Yeah, we know about oil laundering, cigarette smuggling, ATM raids on both sides of the border, but also rural crime as well, where you have these roaming burglary gangs, you know, targeting isolated homes. Do you take, like, South Armagh, you will see very little policing, let's say, for the first five mile or ten mile in, like, you know. It's just not a place where the PSNI come down and engage with the with the public. They just don't do it because they wouldn't be accepted and they'd be spattered and stones thrown at them. So there's a huge value in cross-border cooperation in that, like, the Irish police should be allowed to go north of the border to make inquiries and vice versa. Many of the standout moments in Pat Murray's career begin with mundane and unremarkable circumstances. He gets a call from bed. His phone goes off while he's eating a sandwich over lunch. Always unpredictable and always unremarkable. The most significant case that Pat will work in his career also had a modest beginning. On Friday, January 25th, 2013, Pat finished working a shift in Fort Apache at around 5pm. It had been a quiet enough day and he was looking forward to the weekend ahead. On the drive home, he began to think about life outside the Gardaí and whether something else might be possible for him. Now in his 50s, parts of the job were beginning to take their toll. The hours kept getting longer while resources for his team were being reduced. Not just that, Pat's morale was taking hits. When he arrived home shortly after six, he was relieved to be clocking off for the night. My partner at the time, Neve, uh, was there. We had dinner, we had steak, and I uh, remember well. Uh, I remember I went for a run on a treadmill. I had a treadmill upstairs in, in one of the rooms, a little gym, and I ran. And then I came back down, had a shower, and came back down. Did you get something done or something? Um, and uh, we're sitting down to watch the TV to, you know, spend the evening together when the phone rang. And it was my superintendent, uh, Jerry Curley. It was late in the evening at this stage, around 10.30pm. Pat knew a call this late was never good news. He answered the phone with a familiar sense of trepidation. And he says, uh, did you hear about Adrian? And I says, no. He says, Adrian's dead. His superintendent was speaking about Adrian Donahue, a 41-year-old detective in the Louth Division, an integral part of Pat's team and someone he had gotten to know quite well in recent years. And I, like, I was shocked. I was, I says, what do you mean? He says he was shot dead in Lordship Credit Union during a robbery attempt. Pat was stunned, like a deer in headlights. He couldn't fathom it. He had experienced a lot in his career, but this was completely new territory for him. Jesus, I said, I said, what's the story? He says, yeah, he shot dead in the culprits made a getaway. I says, I'll come in straight away. Right, right, he said. I was shocked. I remember I said it to to Neve. I just said, look, I'm away. There's has to be a guard shot in, in, in Dundalk, uh, Adrian Donoghue. And uh, I says, don't wait up for me. I said, I could be a long night, like, you know. I remember that night quite vividly because if, when you're working in the media and obviously you remember uh, the, the, the big cases when the, the call comes through that a Garda ha- has been shot dead and the, the, the Garda was shot dead in the course of his work that evening where he was escorting a cash van to Lordship Credit Union and escorting the, the employees of the credit union as they were leaving uh, the establishment. 
Detective Guard Adrian Donahue was shot dead at, at point blank range. I got into the car and was driving in and I was thinking it out and I said, Jesus Christ, this is terrible. So I knew it would be up to me, it'd be left to me to get the incident room running and getting the troops together. And I was thinking it out in the way and, and I made a number of phone calls to particular guards and I knew I needed certain people in positions to help you know, establish the instant room and inquiries and all of that. And I made a few phone calls to people that I wanted on the team. And they never let me down and said they'd be there. Uh, they didn't hear. And it was, you know, it hadn't broke on the news per se. The mood in the station was unlike anything he'd witnessed before. Emotion was rife and the sense of shock was palpable. It was the station of the quivering lip Everybody was huddled, standing in corners, two and three people, and people crying their eyes out. Pat knew that this was the beginning of something big. Bigger than any case that had come before. He took a few seconds to take it all in. I remember one guy coming over to me when I came in the door, and he he, 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 he uh, had his hands out, like, you know, like a priest saying mass, he was like looking at me. What he said, what? Like he, I could see him. He was asking me like to explain what had happened. Like you know, he couldn't comprehend or take in what was after happening, and he was nearly looking to me for answers. Like like I just didn't say. I just you know, I just looked at him and sort of nodded, like as if to say, look at. I don't know what's happening. Like it was like that. It was just a shock. Like and there was people all over the station gathered together guards that were working together that day people who had come in guards who had come in to help and they were just crying and yeah it would have been easy to get caught up in the sorrow that was taking over the room but it wouldn't have done the investigation any favors acting fast and working diligently was key and pat knew it but i know myself i had to I couldn't engage, I couldn't allow my emotions to take over, like, you know, because I would have broke down, but I had a job to do, and I know my strengths and I know what I needed to do. Adrian Dunahoo had been stationed in Dundalk Garda Station for 17 years. He was a tall man with brown hair and bright eyes, often described as a gentle giant, radiating warmth to anyone who encountered him. I met Adrian on a daily basis, and I remember him, he'd often come to my office and stand, a big, tall man, lovely guy, and he'd stand and have the crack, like, have the chat, what are you doing, or what's happening, or, you know, the usual chit-chat you'd have. Adrian's wife, Caroline, was also in the police force. The pair had met in the same class in Templemore College in 1994, and were later posted to Dundalk Garda Station. Caroline worked with the immigration unit, and Adrian was appointed as a detective Garda. They went on to have two children, Amy and Niall, and lived a happily married life in their hometown of Belurgan, County Louth. I always noticed when, when I tasked them with doing a job, if I said, look, I need you to find out this or that, or I need, to, I need a report on this person or this company or this whatever, 
and I'd give it to him. He'd have it back very, very smartly and it'd be done to perfection. And he'd have it done like, you know, there was no thing of asking him, will you go back and do this or will you go back and do that? He had everything covered. He was an exceptional detective. Yes, a very, very good detective. 89 guards have lost their lives in the history of the state, you know, um, for over the last 100 years. But, you know, this was so brutal as well because like we, as the details emerged, like the detective guard Adrian Donoghue had no chance. And I think it's a miracle that his colleague, Joe Ryan, wasn't murdered as well. Pat was stuck in a difficult scenario. He needed to get things moving and moving quickly. But the men and women around him were still trying to process what had happened to their colleague, their friend. He went straight to the incident room and tried to get a plan in place. At the top of the incident room there was a big table, which is the conference table, and there was nobody sitting at it. But when I came into the incident room, they were all looking at me, like people just looking at me, like, you know. So I went up and I sat in the centre of the conference table, in the position of where a senior investigating officer would. And I looked around and I saw Joe Ryan there, and Joe was with Adrian when Adrian was shot. And I think, God, how is he here? Like, obviously, shock hadn't hit him at that stage. So I asked Joe, I said, will you come to my office? And I brought one of my detective sergeants with me, Sergeant Kieran Reedy, Detective Gallagher Sergeant Reedy. And I brought them up to my office and I sat Joe down and I took out my notebook and I said to Joe, tell me what happened. Just talk to me what happened. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Joe Ryan was a 20-year veteran of the force, an experienced Garda who worked with Adrian on a regular basis. The men were happy to be posted together on that Friday evening. They knew that the conversation would flow and they enjoyed each other's company. It was a dark and stormy night in Dundalk. The rain poured all afternoon and evening. The pair had been tasked with providing an armed escort for the takings of multiple credit union branches along the northeast coast. Omid was the first on the list 
followed by Carlingford, down to Cooley, and then on to Lordship, a small rural village east of Dundalk. The men were accompanied by branch volunteers and gently trailed a black Nissan Qashqai, being driven by credit union worker Mary Hanlon. In previous years, the service was carried out by volunteers alone, but criminal gangs had become wise to the transfer as an easy target. Because of the recent raids, the protocol had changed. Now drop-offs were always carried out with guardian assistance and often armed. They all pulled up to the car park. Adrian was more than familiar with the area. This wasn't his first patrol for the credit union and his children attended Belurgan National School directly across the road. The protocol for exchanging money was the same for each branch. Two credit union employees would wait inside with the cash prepared and keep the doors locked until Gardy arrived and gave a signal. When the convoy drove into the car park, the signal was given. Pat Bellew, another volunteer who'd been waiting inside for the Gardy to arrive, entered his golden Mazda carrying 7,000 euro in cash. Adrian's colleague, Joe Ryan, recalled his recollections of the night to Ortiz primetime in October 2020. It was a wet, miserable night, so it was the type of weather you wouldn't put anybody out in. Us, us two, we were out in this, unfortunately, that night. Mary Hannon and Pat Bellew prepared to leave the car park and started edging out towards the exit. We were in um, a Toyota Avensis. Um, the cash guy then took off and we took, went in behind the cash guy. And that's first when we noticed then that as cash guy was approaching the, the exit to the car park, that there was a car after pulling up and blocking it. Suddenly, a Volkswagen Passat, coming from the Carlingford direction, trapped the convoy of cars from exiting. Mary's was first stuck at the gate, with the unmarked Garda car sitting 15 feet behind. Pat Belly recalls the moment to RTE in August 2020. Just as I was straightening the car up to, to drive forward, I noticed a couple of people jump across the wall and they shouted something like, this is a, a robbery. I, I didn't, I can't tell you exactly what they said, I don't remember the exact words. But the impression I got was that we were going to be raided. Four men scaled a wall from the rear of the credit union. They were dressed head to toe in black, all wearing balaclavas. Two of the group were armed and ran straight in the direction of the unmarked guard car where Joe and Adrian were sitting. Adrian opened his door and exited the car to investigate what was happening with the Volkswagen blocking the gate. Facing the opposite direction, he was completely unaware of the two armed raiders approaching him. I heard banging off to my right-hand side and shouting. And then two people running towards the guard the car. Next thing, about four or five feet from the car, from where I was sitting in the car, um, flash came out over the, from the barrel of the gun. So we knew then, or I knew then, it was a real gun. The two unarmed men made their way to the vehicles of Pat Bellew and Bernadette McShane, another volunteer who'd been waiting inside the credit union only minutes earlier. And I said to myself, this is just, just do what you're normally supposed to do. Just, you know, give them the money, put up no uh, opposition. And that's what I did. I just, I stopped the car. The next thing I knew was there was an enormous crack as somebody broke in the driver's door window. 
and the glass came in on top of me. I believe he went round the car, opened the passenger door and took the money. While this was occurring, one of the armed raiders ran over to Joe Ryan's passenger door. And then the door was opened and that same shotgun and a handgun similar to what we were carrying, nine mils, was pointed at me and I was threatened. And then that lasted about 10 seconds maybe. And they took the keys of the car and then ran off. The four men ran towards the dark Volkswagen Passat, blocking the entrance. This would be their getaway vehicle. Seconds later, the car sped off in the direction of Dundalk. The whole incident unfolded in just 58 seconds. Shaking, his body full of adrenaline, Detective Ryan believed the gunfire over the car was a warning shot. He was unaware of Adrian's condition, lying lifeless on the ground, just feet away. So then I went around to the front of the car to see if Adrian was okay, and I found him lying on the ground. Adrian had been hit directly in the right side of his head with a shotgun. He died instantly from the bullet wound. Went to him naturally enough and attended first aid, but his injuries were so horrific, it was pain. He was dead and, um, and um, nothing could be done for him. Those 58 seconds in Lordship would have a profound impact on everyone involved that day. Adrian's wife, Caroline, was now a widow and their children were left without a father. For the witnesses on the day, is something they still struggle to come to terms with. For Joe Ryan in particular, life has never been the same since the raid of the Lordship Credit Union. I feel that um, guilty. That's what I feel. Guilty in the sense that it was me in the driver's seat and Adrian in the passenger seat. Guilty that Adrian is dead and I'm not. Or um, Adrian was a family man. I don't have any kids, so that's it's guilt is the main thing I feel. Hours later, back in Dundalk Garda Station, Pat began to gather as much evidence as possible. He asked Joe Ryan to relay any details that he could remember. I said, Joe, tell me, what accents had they got? And he says, Pat, they weren't Dublin accents, they weren't travellers, they weren't northern accents. He says, they were border accents. And Joe has been, whatever, 30 years or 20-something years on the border. He knows border accents. And he knows local criminals and he knows what people. And he says, no, Pat, there were local border accents. And I said, no, that's grand. He described what they were and he described his best. And I took all those notes. And I went back downstairs. And this is where it all started. Um, I sat into the conference room again. I sat at the top desk. I looked round and uh, I picked two of my detective sergeants and I told them to go to the office next door and write out 15 or 20 names of people with local border accents that would be involved in this type of carry-on. Nobody knew it yet, but Pat's first line of inquiry on the case would prove to be one of the most important ones of his career. Adrian's killer that night their name would make an appearance on the list of local men. And it wouldn't be long until they'd find themselves in the centre of the biggest murder investigation Ireland has ever seen.
In the following days, a nation began to grieve. Tributes were made across the country to Adrian and his family. What type of a man he was, his love for Caroline and his children, his dedication and involvement in St. Patrick's GAA Club, where he'd build up relationships, both playing and coaching. Seamus Savage is a close family friend of the Dunahoo's. He remembers Adrian as one of the kindest men he knew. He was someone who um, anyone, anyone could talk to. He'd, he'd get have a conversation with anyone. My kids at home now used to love him coming and have a great crack with him at that. And it was the same when he was down around the club and started uh, looking after underage football and that. He'd all the kids around him and a big smile on his face. He just loved it. This was the first time since 1996 that a member of Angarda Shiakana had been shot dead in the line of duty. Ireland had become a different place in the years since. Paramilitary organisations didn't hold a grip of fear across the country like it had during the Troubles. But fear was still there. Not quite in the same way, but the thought of any resurgence of dissident Republican activity was cause for concern, particularly for those living on the border region. Enda Kenny, Taoiseach at the time, addressed the doll the week following Adrian's death. In this murder, the people of Ireland have expressed their revulsion. They have rallied behind the Gardaí. I remember well Alas Cancola, the murders of Garda Henry Byrne and Garda John Morley in 1980. And in 1996, the murder of Garda Jerry McCabe and the country felt the same sense of revulsion then as it does now. The drop of a pin could be heard from the doll that afternoon. All parties came together and shared agreed sentiments. There was a clear focus on bringing justice to the Dunahoo's and the state was unified. Jerry Adams, Sinn Féin leader of the day, touched on the country's violent past in his expression of sympathy. I know words of mine can remove that hurt and dreadful deeds cannot be undone. But I want to restate that the resolve of Sinn Féin and of the majority of Irish people is to ensure that there's never ever a reoccurrence of conflict. Members of Angarda Shikana do a dangerous job and they take risks for all of us. As Enda Kenny closed his address, he reminded the House, the State and the criminals involved that day what they had now come up against. I want to assure the family of Adrian Donoghue and the people of Ireland that those who committed this act of cowardice will face the full rigours of the law. The penalty for those found guilty of killing a member of Ungarda Shikana is a minimum mandatory sentence of 40 years imprisonment upon conviction and they will serve that. In the hours after Adrian's murder, the scene was preserved and forensic examinations began at the credit union. I was in charge of the divisional search team as well. I uh, mobilised them and utilised them to search the area of road between Lordship Credit Union and the roundabout of Ballymuscanon uh, to see if something had been thrown out or initially thrown out or, you know, anything of interest or someone could have taken a ballot lab off. The night before, Pat had tasked his team to compile a list of 15 to 20 men who might have been involved in criminal activity. The list wasn't short in offenders and featured men from across the district. Some involved in petty crime, 
and others with a long history of serious charges. So I had accounted for all those people on the list and I said, we'll meet back here at half eleven or wherever it was. So they all came back and everyone was accounted for on the list apart from uh, Aaron Brady. Aaron Brady was a 23-year-old man from Cross Maglen in South Armagh. He had short dark hair and a pale complexion. He came from a well-respected family. His father was involved in local GAA teams and the pair worked together in the family business. Brady had completed his apprenticeship to become an electrician, but emigrated to Australia after the economic crash. When he returned to Ireland in 2011, he began to get involved in local criminality along the border region. Aaron Brady had been linked to, to numerous uh, robberies in the um, the border region, um, and he, he was a part of a gang called the Friday Night Gang because they struck on a Friday night. He was a young man who was accused of uh, involvement in very serious criminality, oil laundering as well, uh, theft and armed robbery. Hours after the shooting, Gardy wanted to account for his movements. Brady was out on bail for a 2011 incident where he'd rammed a stolen vehicle into three taxis and a guard van. In the early hours of Saturday, January 26th, two Gardy called to the residence that he'd given, but Brady was not at home. So I said, that's fine. We'll have to, you know, look into him a little bit deeper. But the sergeant who had uh, Aaron Brady charged and went out that night to see could he find him was actually one of my sergeants in charge of the search team. On the morning after Adrian's death, the unit had set up roadblocks around the region and looked for information on whether anyone had seen anything suspicious. He saw uh, a car approaching, driving slow because of the the guards searching and that so there wasn't as many cars travelling fast. Aaron Brady was sitting in the passenger seat of the vehicle. Both men were acting casually as the officer approached. So naturally he went out and he stopped the car. And the guard had been very cute and uh, been very wise. And he took Aaron Brady a couple of steps away from the car, away out of the earshot of the other person, and asked him to account for his movements the night before. Brady told the officer he was at his girlfriend's house and they were having a night in together. He stated he'd left his girlfriend's and stayed over in the driver's house from 3am in the morning of the 26th. Aaron Brady also went on to mention that he'd only heard about the shooting that morning. An interesting piece of information, as the driver's house was only two kilometres away from Lordship Credit Union and within the police cordon. So the guard then took the other person out and asked him for his version. And it transpired his version was different. And uh, the sergeant stopped him doing a full report for me. Brady was also asked to give his phone number. The guardee already had an account of his details, but it offered them another opportunity to see if he was acting in any way suspiciously. And he'd given a, a wrong digit at the end of his phone number. Both details were intriguing. Was there something Aaron Brady was trying to cover up? We looked at his phone records, and it, at a time he said he was with his girlfriend, he re- actually ringing her, ringing her phone number. So he couldn't have been with her, like, you know? So things like that started to creep into our uh, look we need to look at this a little bit closer on January 30th 
five days after the shooting, Adrian Donahue's state funeral took place in Dundalk. The service was attended by President Michael D. Higgins and Taoiseach Enda Kenny. 2,500 Gardaí lined the streets to pay their respect to Adrian's family and loved ones. The tense and emotive atmosphere from inside the church flooded outside to thousands of mourners who came to try and find solace in an act that left a whole community lost for words. Father Michael Cusack, the local parish priest and friend of the Donahue family, spoke earnestly as his voice echoed from the speaker system to mourners outside. Where sin or evil lurks, it slowly and subtly can take hold of anyone's heart. We've seen it in so many walks of life. Evil creeping in, slow acceptance, gentle movement, until there's contamination all around. It's like Satan laughing at us. We see it where people like on last Friday night, where people callously mow down human life. I have absolutely no doubt that there are people who today know who has caused this dreadful sorrow in the lives of so many. And if there's anyone who knows anything about that, if you have any semblance of goodness in you, for God's sake, turn these people in. Next time on The Making of a Detective. I was pretty pissed off with that now, you know. I, was, I sort of said to them, I won't be helping anyone, I said. I'm taking myself off this investigation. You have someone else in now in my place. Let them do their business. The Making of a Detective is brought to you by The Irish Sun. This series is written and produced by me, Ian Doyle. If you've enjoyed the podcast so far, please take a moment and leave us a review in your podcast app. Or even better, tell a friend about the show. If you want to learn more about the life and career of Pat Murray, buy his book, The Making of a Detective by Penguin Books. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.